Abdullah, thanks for doing this. Like, uh, you know, this is hopefully the first of many conversations we can have like this. And I think we're also hoping to like have recurring people. We can talk about like more topics, but we wanted to have like just very casual chat, record it, see if it's useful to people kind of in the ecosystem uh, and then go from there. Um, but I think maybe just to kind of kick off, for people who don't know you, uh, I think it's very much worth kind of giving a little bit of background on yourself, both professionally and personally, like where do you grow up, yeah. how do you get into law, etc. So, all yours. Sure. So, uh, I try and uh, keep this reasonably succinct. I, I grew up in the UK. Uh, my parents are uh, from uh, Jordan, Palestine, Jordan. Um, but I grew up there from the age of two uh, mm-hmm. and was educated there. Went to university in London, uh, studied law, um, qualified as a lawyer in London, oh. working in corporate law. Why law specifically? Why did you? Uh, so my my dad was my inspiration to get into law. Um, he told me a story involving Middle East history and a, and a UN resolution where the absence of one word from the Arabic translation made a big difference on. Okay. And I remember it as a 14-year-old being extremely struck by how something so fundamentally uh, impactful on the lives of so many people could be impacted by language and, and, uh, and, and legality. Okay. So I decided at that age that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I also used to, as a kid, uh, whenever there would be like a courtroom drama on TV, mm-hmm. I would get completely absorbed into, into it and was very absorbed by the advocacy aspects of law. And so actually what drew me into into law was knowing from quite an early age that I had a very strong um, attraction to being an advocate of some description. Like, you know, becoming an expert in some topic and being the person who kind of presents and explains that topic in a way that makes people either understand it better or change their mind. And yeah. So that was really, it was an, it was an insp- inspiration thing at the but age of You 14. didn't go down the like barrister or like the, the adversarial courtroom. I wanted to. Yeah. I wanted to actually. I wanted to be a barrister initially. Uh, but it was very difficult to get um, to get a pupillage, which is like the barrister yeah. training contract. In the UK, you go to like an inn, right? That's the inns of court. Exactly. Or so getting a membership to one of the inns is, is doable. Tricky. Yeah, okay. But getting a pupillage with like the best chambers, particularly for kind of commercial uh, advocacy, um, is quite difficult. Okay. If I wanted to be a criminal lawyer, I could have done. Mm. And in my first and second and third internships, I actually worked with criminal law firms. Oh, okay. And really enjoyed, you know, crime as a kind of legal uh, topic. <laughs> But it just wasn't what I, I didn't. I knew that's not what I wanted to do mm. long term. And it's a it's a difficult world to be in because, mm. you know, you're either prosecuting and the, the moral pressure of being right is something that, you know, weighed on me as an mm. idea uh, or you're defending. And then the moral pressure of making sure that you get the right result. Yeah. Is, so for me, it was always going to be about, you know, commercial, corporate um, commerce and business. And if I remember if I, if I, unless I got this wrong, in the UK, you could be either. So at the same time, so you could be like a barrister and you could either be on for acting for defense and then in your next case, you're the prosecutor 100%. representing the crown 100%. or the prosecution, right? Exactly. So the, the, the advocate, the barrister is like, uh, is like a mercenary. Yeah. Whoever is paying. Doesn't matter, right? Doesn't, ma- yeah, yeah. doesn't matter. 
I mean, people obviously develop a name and being a really yeah. strong prosecutor in murder cases or being a strong defender yeah. in whatever. Anyway, so the criminal law wasn't really what was mm. going to be my long-term goal. I always knew that. There was a possibility of getting into politics. I actually kind of oh, had cool. early aspirations of running for the British Parliament. Okay. You know, having been born and raised there, I was very taken by that whole system that they have. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, when you're young, you're also a little bit naive and, and yeah. you don't realize how much, quite how much of a game it is. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of advocacy, which makes it very attractive. Are you still like a politics into it, polit like British politics, or not so much? I'm into politics generally. Okay. And I'm still very much into British politics. Yeah. But, you know, the way politics has gone in the last 20 years for me makes it now certainly a completely unattractive place to be. To be in, but to watch from a distance is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, even to watch from a distance, you know, yeah. there's this, in the old days, you know, when I was younger, sound like an old man, but when I was younger, politics was about there being two or three or four very different viewpoints and mm. approaches to the world. Now it's all just merged into one. Yeah. Everybody sounds the same. Everybody wants the same thing. Yeah. Everybody has the same ideas and they're very vacuous and... Yeah. Nobody's really grasping the serious issues. Nobody takes the big issues seriously enough. So, yeah, I think especially you're like I feel the same way about like British politics in the sense that, you know, like British parliamentary democracy is is very unique in its a adversarial nature. So back yeah. to that kind of advocacy point, and um, and it, it it's very uh, humbling I think to all the participants because everyone gets dragged down in, yeah. in the middle of it. Um, yeah, I follow it a lot. Like I'm a big fan. I watch like the, I, I like the kind of like the level of dispute. But I, I agree with you. Like it's all just merged into this kind of like centrism, and it's absolutely. But it's a centrism with no, um, no substance almost. Like yeah. it's just like like let's push the status quo exactly over exactly. and over and over again. Whether it's the Tories or Labour or, or. Um, Whoever, which so which, which side which side would you have, which party would you have been when you were young? <laughs> so if you grew up in in the UK, that's a question that you generally don't ask. Yeah, I know, people. I know, yeah. But I'll um, tell you why I'm asking in a second. But yeah. So look, I mean, I I definitely lean heavily towards social justice, so that puts me more in a sort of left leaning way. Yeah. But I'm not anti free market at all. So I'm you know I'm, I wouldn't describe myself as like a socialist, um, but I do think that. Um, from a sort of philosophical and economic perspective, the Marxist lens of politics is probably the one that it always produces the right answers. When, and when I say Marxist, I don't mean, you know, Marxist, Leninist, socialist politics and economics. I mean, the view of the world, what, is, what shapes the world, what shapes people's agendas, what makes people in democracies vote the way they vote, yeah. what, what do they care about? But that's been turned on its head. I mean, since Trump and Brexit yeah. and Cambridge Analytica and social media, I think the world has been turned completely upside down. And so yeah. the answers that you used to be able to find logically pre those years have kind of gone. Yeah, uh, well, there's like uh, my, so my wife's English. I spent a lot of time in the UK growing up. A lot of my family's English, but they're, my wife's family is from Manchester. So every Christmas I wear the same Margaret Thatcher Christmas sweater. <laughs> And I, I always feel I'm going to get stabbed somewhere in Manchester because, as you know, like not very popular there. But I'm I'm of the total opposite oh, yeah. persuasion. Like I like I identify a lot with like the Tory tradition in a, in a big well, way. Well, I do yeah. too. 
I do too. I mean, the Tories have a lot of things that they do in a much, much better way than the left agenda mm. in the UK. I mean, on foreign policy, for example, I have a strong preference for the Conservatives and always yeah. have since, since a young age. So yeah. you pick and choose based, I mean, you pick and choose the ideas that you're are drawn to in the English or British legal system, uh, British political system that doesn't necessarily bring you down very firmly on one side or another. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Anyway, I think like just uh, uh, we'll do it like separate chat on that. I think under itself because I can we can go, I think very deep into that. But I think just on like you know what we're on today. So you 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 know you were lawyer pra- starting to practice in the UK, and then you know what got you to the Middle East, and then into venture specifically. Yeah. So look, I moved to the Middle East in 2000, and the Gulf region looked very very different back then. Um, I was based in Bahrain, working with one of the top global law firms um, and principally working on project finance transactions with like very, very large financing mm-hmm. of utilities and oil and gas yeah. projects and uh, industrial projects, mainly in Saudi Arabia, some here in the UAE. The UAE was a completely different country even mm. back you know, in, two, in 2000. And then I got an opportunity um, to work on a telecom project. And it was in the period around 2003, 2004, when the Middle East governments were beginning to think about liberalizing the telecom sector in the way that the Americans had done and the Europeans had done. And liberalization is a great thing because, you know, it enables a country to, you know, invite companies to come and compete with their state-owned monopolies. Mm -hmm which should drive you know, better quality of service, better prices for customers, but also to raise revenue from selling licenses and getting you know, the, the kind of investment and development. So when I worked on the first telecom project, I was absolutely drawn and sucked into it. I loved the industry. I loved what the industry was doing. And I love the fact that our governments across the Middle East mm-hmm. were thinking in this way, competition and the free market, yeah, yeah. very Thatcherite actually. <laughs> so on back on the, yeah. the, the politics. Um, and the other thing I loved about telecoms in particular was that it was bringing, you know, good quality telecom services. And back in those days, the very early days yeah. of high speed Internet, not just the high speed Internet that you can send through a copper wire that's buried under the ground, which was the domain very much of the state owned telecom mm-hmm. companies globally. But now the mobile companies who didn't need to dig up 16,000 kilometers of road to lay cable yeah. could actually do internet just by putting towers and and so the technology of telecom really appealed to me the social and economic impact of technology really appealed to me and again back to the politics for a person who sort of leans towards social justice i love the idea that telecom yeah. brought democratization of access to information mm. access to markets so it yeah. felt like i was able to be a corporate lawyer who was really participating in industry that was doing a lot of good yeah. for people as a whole. And then the telecom companies, I ended up representing all the major telcos in the region mm-hmm. and some of the biggest telcos from outside the region, like Vodafone and AT&T and France Telecom Orange on, on telecom transactions. And the deals that I worked on spanned like 33 countries, billions, tens of billions of dollars of investment, um, super interesting deals. And, uh, and then in 2009, when the global financial crisis started, there was no money to do like $5 billion and $7 billion deals. You know, 
For example, Zin Group bought a license in Saudi Arabia to do a third mobile operator. They paid $7 billion just for the license without then the, you know, the yeah. billions of dollars they had to put in to build the infrastructure. So the money dried up in 2009, but what some of these telcos started doing was, in my view, really smart thinking, was how do I kind of integrate technology into my value chain for the purposes of you know, bringing uh, vertical integration, for want of a mm -hmm. better expression, into the telecom value chain? Because there, there was a worry, I think, with a lot of the big telcos at the time, um, just to become like what they call like a dumb pipe, it just kind of just the infrastructure with nothing on top of it. Yeah. And I think there was, there was a big move towards that. But, 100%. But a lot of mixed results, right? They were never really got into the full value chain. Yeah, well, some did Some did better than others. None of them managed to, but, but you know, I mean, I don't, can't think of a telecom company anywhere in the world yeah. that really managed to do what, you know, one of our regional telcos is doing today. I know we're not naming names in this mm. conversation, but, you know, there's a big telco in the region that has decided to become a technology company, for yeah, example, yeah. and I think they're doing, you know, a pretty amazing job in going in that direction. But that's the direction of travel for telcos now. Yeah. But back then, telcos made their money from revenues generated from voice, yeah. i.e. phone calls, and the profits that you made from international voice were much higher than the profits mm -hmm. you made from domestic yeah, voice. Yeah. So the kind of hierarchy of um, profitability came, you know, from... Uh, national voice being at the bottom, international yeah. voice being at the top, and then data was really where, where the money was to uh, be made. Premium. premium. Premium tariff, right? Like on a megabyte exactly. or whatever. And then, and then data, you know, you think of, we think of data and telecoms as B2C, mm. as, you know, how much data do I have? Yeah. But actually the real users of data, even from mobile companies, mm. are institutions and banks and, you know, and, and, and businesses. So that was, the, that was what became the game. So a lot of these guys started thinking about adjacent and synergistic technology. Yeah. And so my practice as a legal practice started slowly evolving more towards kind of private equity type technology investment I deals. see, okay. And then in 2016, one of my long-term collaborators on telecom M&A, mm -hmm. uh, he and I uh, founded this small investor group for angel investors that very quickly turned into a, a fund. And um, we got a lot of our friends from the telecom industry to come and yeah. join us. This is Dubai Angel Investors. This is Dubai yeah. Angel Investors. And so we started investing in, in, in definitely in early stage tech yeah. companies. And so being the only lawyer in this network of people, I represented the fund on our early investments. And I loved you know the way yeah. in which venture deals are structured. I mean, venture deals are complex and yeah. they're challenging and yet they're quite low value yeah and so the challenge is the you know, ticket is low value and then the actual like on the legal side the fees are low value so absolutely but high volume you can you can have like a lot absolutely of absolutely and exactly so venture capitalists you know they don't spend a lot of money on legal fees but my the way i looked at it was look the if you if you work whether you work on the investor side or the company side in a venture deal you are ultimately, if you're adding real value, yeah. I mean real value, you're going to end up being part of a journey that ends up in an IPO or, or a yeah, multi-billion yeah. dollar trade mm -hmm. sale. And you're doing something you know, that's exciting in terms of the intellectual challenge of the legal piece, but you're working with people who are doing something exciting in terms of disruption and innovation. And yeah. tech. So for all of those reasons, you know, I've, I've always been 
very drawn to that. And the Dubai Angel experience helped me a lot in terms of the legal practice because it immersed me in the industry yeah. and it immersed me in relationships with VCs. Well, I mean, legal and also like on, like on just on the commercial side, because you were running these deals, not yeah. just purely from a legal side, but you were kind of you know, talking to founders, looking at business models. And... So how many did, did DAI do, Bay Angels? So do? we invested in 37 companies, of which um, about a quarter in the US and a quarter in Europe and the rest in, in MENA. Mm -hmm. And in MENA, predominantly the UAE and Egypt, but mm -hmm. with a few in Lebanon, we exited all of our Lebanese investments yeah. uh, for one reason or another, but thankfully we got out of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, and of the 37 companies, so we exited four, two or three have failed, but the vast majority are still operating. Yeah. And a, there's a, a nice little cohort of them nice. that are now post Series B and they're doing well. So, yeah, it's awesome. been a great journey. Yeah. And so that got you into, like, uh, ex that got you exposure into VC and you got the bug, as it were, and you started getting really interested in it. And you built yeah. a practice around it, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so doing DAI, investing as angel investors, investing as a micro VC, but with yeah. angels being the investors, you know, we were co-investing with everyone doing venture in the region. Yeah. And so, you know, people like you and the other kind of fund managers, there weren't many fund managers no, in 2016. Yeah. But this was ahead of its time, DAI as well. And like being, having a legal practice focused on venture at that time or developing it at that time was was you know way ahead of its time it was you know the shape of things to come and so it was very early yeah look i mean i i i'm very proud of that and i'm, I'm very proud of the fact that in 2004 when i started doing telecom it was the beginning of a wave yeah. that hadn't yet started but i i knew it was coming i don't know i've always had a little bit of a knack for a kind of seeing a little bit what's on the horizon or, or hopefully seeing what's on the horizon but it's proven it's proven right a few times yeah um so yeah with venture it was the same and you know the thing is with with legal services you're you know selling legal services to strangers is quite challenging yeah selling legal services to people who know you and who have seen the qualities you, yeah. is actually much easier and so it, it was a natural thing to do yeah. in the legal practice was to move into that yeah. area and I think since 2016, there's been a real kind of sea change in, in venture activity and startup activity and in this kind of whole ecosystem. I think in, if I remember 2016, I mean, there's, you know, probably like under a couple of hundred companies across the Middle East, like you could invest in investable companies, yeah. maybe 100, 200 a year. Probably deployed capital was, was minuscule, like under $100 million a year, 100, 200 million dollars a year also. And now we're at like three, four billion dollars a year. So there's kind of been this, you know, Cambrian explosion of activity between like um, founders coming out of companies like Kareem or other companies like Jazz have succeeded yeah. and fund managers emerging. And, you know, so it's, a, it's an interesting time, but not without its challenges. So now, like globally, the, the funding environment shifted. Um, the uh, availability of capital globally has kind of contracted, particularly probably late stage. So, you know, you're in a unique vantage point where because of what you do day to day as a, as a, as a legal advisor, you're seeing the ecosystem from a um, kind of a, as a third party from a vantage, from a different vantage point. What, what, what are you seeing? What's changing? What's, what's emerged? How, how do you feel about like, uh, is there a contraction in our part of the world and how is it emerging? I mean, the numbers are contracting. What are you seeing and what are you feeling? Yeah. 
So look, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that question because there, yeah, I mean, there are multiple angles to look at this from. I think you know there is a there are global trends that the Middle East is mm -hmm. completely in sync with, which is the sort of um, retrenchment a little bit on the part of people who are deploying capital, yeah. particularly in in the private capital space, whether you're talking about institutional investors, private institutional yeah. or family offices. Right. Of course, one thing that we have in the Middle East that you don't have as much of elsewhere is sovereign wealth, meaning you know sovereign capital that is finding its way in one way or another into this ecosystem. So you know what am I seeing? I'm seeing so many things. Um, so in terms of deal trends, you know what's happening here in the last year, I think is mirroring very very closely what's happening in Europe and the US. Mm. You know earlier stage deals are still getting done, but at a much uh, smaller volume at a much longer cadence, slower cadence, um, with more complexity being built in. So risk yeah. averseness. So more kind of structuring around the deal. Exactly. And by early stage, you mean like you know, up to a Series A, so tickets of under 5 million or so Yeah, well, even, 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 even up to 20 million, you know, yeah. because Series A is obviously in the US yes, and Europe yeah. have now become bigger. But yeah, I mean, absolutely up to Series A is what I would describe as, as early stage. Growth deals and, and Series B deals have, have dropped off somewhat. And that's also something mm. that's happening globally. Yeah. But look, I mean, the, tru the truism is that good founders with good companies are still going to do well and are still going to find money because there's capital. Yeah. There is capital. The question is whether the person who's writing the checks is as gung-ho as they were two years mm. ago. So I think, I think really that's the issue. It's not that there's no yeah. capital left. I mean, to set the, the benchmark, let's go back kind of two years and kind of compare to where we are today. Um, you know, VCs would come to you looking for, you know, for, kind of for structuring advice, kind of for drafting, but also due diligence, yeah. et cetera. Uh, yeah. Maybe could you walk through how that's kind of changed? Like what are in terms of the robustness of the DD or the negotiation and, and all of that? Because for us as like on the investment side, we feel like the, the founders just tell us like, you've got two days to write a check or write, whether you either write it or you don't, and, and that's it. And that always made me feel very uncomfortable. But, uh, but tell me like how, how you've seen things kind of evolve on your side. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting phenomenon because that's the psychological phenomena of the dynamic between founders and investors, yeah. right? the FOMO idea. Yeah. But look, I mean, DD, you know, when I when I was growing up as a lawyer, DD was all about and it was usually in M&A or in banking and mm. you know, big value banking transactions. DD was always about is the price right? Is the deal right? Is there a reason to either walk away from the deal? Yeah. Or is there something that needs to be fixed for us to do this deal yeah. in order to mitigate risk? In venture, you know, first of all, early stage companies, let's if we talk about early stage, Usually there's not that much to DD, right? You're not talking about mature companies. You're usually not talking about huge amounts of revenue. Um, so you're really focused on a few narrow areas of just validating mm. that this isn't going to turn into a disaster. Is the corporate structure right? Is the IP sitting in the right place? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Do the employees yeah. have contracts and have they assigned their IP and that, that type of thing? Now in early stage deals, there is more of a mindset in the investor side of, is this the right deal? Is the price right? You know, valuation has become something that we yeah. can focus on. You know, you and I know, I mean, if you take SaaS as a, as a vertical, mm. as an example, there used to be this just 
conventional wisdom that eight to 12 times yeah, yeah. top line was the valuation for a SaaS company. Uh, well, it's becoming like, it became at some point like 50 or 30 or 40, uh, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, exactly. I've seen crazy multiples. And now, you know, since the last, uh, since the sort of current retrenchment or market that we're in, yeah. people are focused on, is it profitable or is it going to be profitable soon? And what's the path there and how do they get there? So, so I guess due diligence has become a bit more focused on that. Yeah. But then to the rest of your question around, you know, are these deals becoming more structured and what role is diligence playing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, investors are now trying to get more protection into their investments and being less gung-ho. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the things that was a phenomenon in 2020 and 2021 and 2018, 19, yeah. is that there were these kind of global investors, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, there's a very well-known one that invested in some very big disaster stories, yeah. you know, where they would say, well, here comes the helicopter of this particular investor and there's somebody in there just throwing checks yeah. at the founders. And the problem with that phenomenon is A, it really drives the FOMO. B, it really drives, you know, yeah. sorry to say it, but like irrationality and valuation. Yeah, yeah. And so now we're in this yeah. market where there's pain. The pain has either started or people know that yeah. it's coming. Well, I think the best theory I heard on like the kind of like you I guess you're losing like I'll say it, uh, like the tigers the Kotus, uh, soft banks, uh, soft banks etc is they I think that the strategy was not I mean people I think on the outside would see it as that you know they were very gung-ho very kind of loose with their cash etc I think what they saw and I, and I read this somewhere there was a kind of mismatch between at late stage between public valuations so if you're a public company and SaaS whatever you're trading at let's call it like a 10x multiple or 12x uh, you know re uh, ARR multiple but then pre-IPO companies that are still growing quickly or faster that will go IPO in two three years were uh, trading at like you know some discount to that let's call 25% discount so their theory was that I think um, we can grab these comp we can buy the index on all of these companies and they're at these at this late stage where they're trading at some multiple to the public companies and then they're growing anyway so we'll get the benefit of like multiple expansion yeah and we'll and the company's growing so we'll make we'll make a great return and let's not worry too much about these are late stage companies we we will just kind of buy buy the index and the index will 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 will, will, will take care of itself somewhat helped by the fact that you know, between 2010, 2020, maybe a lot of public companies grew as if they were privately held, especially in tech. So they yeah. were growing like 50%, 100% year over year, and their valuations, you know, went up and up and up and up. So I think that was the thinking where the error was, was the public market was mispriced, meaning, you know, yes, it was 12x public, and then let's call it, I'm just making up numbers, 12x multiple for ARR for a public company, then 8x for a private company. But then actually, once the interest rate environment shifted, it became like a 3x multiple. Yeah. And so you're suddenly in private, like, you know, much higher price than what the public is. And you're trading at a, at a premium to public markets. And it's a huge kind of mismatch. Um, it seems like that was what, was what was going on. And now there's this kind of retrenchment uh, around that. Do you think that, though, in... Um, in terms of looking at more DD, more structuring, et cetera, is, can, is, there, is there room for overcorrecting 
really to some degree on the just in terms of like the deal terms and the structuring and the level of due diligence because as you say the earlier you are there's not that much it's a bit of a spectrum very early there's not that much to look at except you know conceptual founder entry valuation as you go along there's more and more and more you know as uh, as the company gets bigger you get to kind of due diligence more but are you seeing like investors going over correcting to one side or is is this appropriate as you know in the aggregate I mean, it's a good, look, it's a good question, and I think it is possible to overcorrect because at the end of the day, venture capital is an asset class that is supposed to be underpinned by, you know, certain principles and, and, uh, and orthodoxies that are kind of connected to that very sort of reductivist but obvious principle that you sit on a kind of risk-reward yeah. spectrum and T-bills are at the bottom left-hand corner yeah, yeah. and venture capital is at the top right. You know, public companies are companies that are open to the world yeah. to, in terms of transparency. And the you know, financial regulators regulate so heavily publicly listed companies or public companies for the sake of protecting the retail investors, investor yeah, yeah. who might go out and put the house on yeah, you know, some yeah, you know, yeah. company like Apple. So the, the, the level of transparency in governments in public markets is super high for that reason. Mm-hmm. In private markets, that isn't there. Mm. And so something else that happened in venture, um, there were a couple of examples. You mentioned Tiger, you mentioned SoftBank. I mean, Tiger, yes, you know, they made loads of those big investments and they were very aggressive. And at one point they were gonna just become dominating. But they also had like some really awesome exits. Yep. You know, yep. I can't remember Absolutely. the name of that. Is it Jewel or the, the, yeah. the, the yeah. vape company? Yeah. They made an awesome exit on that. But then you had SoftBank and WeWork, and I think the WeWork debacle was a seminal moment. Yeah, in this, it's like a premonition. It was a shape of things to come, almost. Hundred yeah. percent. And and because they were because that company had the arrogance to think that they could go private yeah. despite crazy governance weaknesses. Yeah. Then they ended up advertising all of what's wrong in unregulated, you know, private yeah. market governance. Their poster child for like bad behavior basically yeah. without it like going into kind of fraud but almost there right yeah. almost but it the funny thing about New York is like everyone signed off on it basically like all the board the shareholders exactly so exactly. it's just bad behavior so but it's, it's bad not, behavior but with everyone's permission exactly yeah, yeah, yeah exactly because nobody cared yeah. enough yeah it's just like uh, and look I mean I'll tell you something I, I can say this now that it's 20 years in the past when I first moved to the region as a lawyer who has this fascination with how people behave and what motivates people and how people get comfort around things. I remember working on one of the first project finance deals in the region. It was many, many billions of dollars. It was a a project financed deal somewhere here in the Gulf. I'm not going to name any names. And the banks were like a who's who of the global biggest and best. The French and the German and the British and the American banks, all of them wanted to pile in and bring this debt to finance this this project. Mm. And the reason that the project is so appealing is that, you know, it's a low energy cost market. Yeah. So if feedstock is cheap and there's a government entity that's going to guarantee to take all of the product, take, yeah. then it, it looks like it's a sure thing. Like, how are you going to lose money on this? But the banks, of course, they, they are publicly listed companies and they have governance and they mm-hmm. have shareholders to report to. And so for them, you know, risk mitigation comes down to what happens if the customer defaults what happens if this value proposition actually ends up failing? Yeah. 
And what I saw back in those days, again, now that it's 20 years down the line, I don't mind just being open yeah. about this. I wouldn't have said this openly 20 years ago, but you know, global law firms like the one I worked at at the time would say, yeah, this structure works and you don't have to worry about that default because there's a local lawyer in that market that says, don't worry, if the government defaults, you'll be able to get your money. And that was wrong. That was actually yeah. wrong. And if you, if you were a young lawyer sitting and reading the legislation, you knew that that was wrong. But as a, global, as a lawyer in a global law firm, you weren't the one making that call. Yeah. Some local lawyer without an insurance policy was saying, yeah, it'll be fine. Don't yeah. worry, it'll work out. And then the world's biggest publicly listed banks yeah. were committing billions of dollars into these deals on the strength of that comfort. So what I took away from that, it's a slightly long story, but what I took away from it is that people with capital have a very interesting psychology around risk. Yeah. You know, if you think, look, I have to do this deal because I have to be in that market or I have to serve that client or that government. Yeah. I really want to be, I want to, I want to take this risk because there's a great coupon to be made here. Yeah. Then I'll take a very cavalier attitude to risk but I'll put all the paperwork in place that makes it look like I did my yeah, job. Yeah, I'll do a bit of like fig leaf, like window dressing, whatever. Absolutely, yeah. and I saw that happen over and over again. So it really equipped me actually for coming into the venture world because now yeah. I know, you know, in the venture world, we're at the other end of the value spectrum. Exactly, yeah. But people, you know, one of my lawyers called me one day, one of my associates in my team, she said, listen, Abdullah, I'm doing due diligence on a company and um, it's a disaster, it's a fintech and it's, it's not, it's, what it's doing is not legal. And I said to her, okay. Yeah. And she said, but what do I tell the client? I said, well, you tell the client, first of all, everything that you found. And she said, but that means I'm going to kill the deal. I said, no, you're not going to kill the deal. They're going to invest. I guarantee you they're going to invest. She was like, how? You know, if your background is M&A. Yeah, you'll be like, it's, that's it's a non-starter, non non-starter. But I said to her, look, actually, I'm going to say something controversial now for this purpose yeah. of this discussion, is that there's a huge number of fintechs in the Middle East region that are operating illegally. Yeah, well, most, I would say. Most. Actually, most. Actually, the yeah. majority are in a, either you know, blatantly illegally operating or effectively in a gray area or unregulated area where if somebody wants to kind of throw down, put down the, the hammer, they could. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And funnily enough, in today's little down cycle that we're in, yeah. I'm beginning to see financial regulators like wake look up. at things yeah. they weren't looking at before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think part of the risk in, so I want to come back to kind of this idea of like risk and governance yeah. and how to kind of manage that at the more macro stage. But something on the on the VC side um, is that we we look at, invest, the way we look at investing as VCs, I think generally is, um, is driven by, like you said, like these kind of orthodoxies, like the power law, meaning like, you know, you need to invest in, you know, 20 companies and then own as much of that as you can and then you know, one of them is going to succeed, is going to give you a thousand X. And then um, the um, and then maybe a couple will return a little bit more, a little bit less. And then the rest are all go to zero. I think there's kind of a chat and that kind of drives a lot of behaviors around like the FOMO you mentioned. Like I need to be in this deal because this could be the one that gives me the thousand X. One complication of doing VC in our market in the Middle East uh, uh, and kind of emerging markets more generally is the power law is not as um, it's still there, but it's not as uh, pronounced, meaning we're unlikely to get a thousand X outcome or even a hundred X or you could get a hundred X outcome, but you'd have to invest very early. 
because the size of our economies are, if you aggregate the entire Middle East, is reasonably small, like we're a $2 trillion economy, not massive. And then our companies tend not to go global. So they are not in the industries or have the abilities yet to kind of really compete to grab, you know, market share in Europe and in Asia and the US, et cetera. some exceptions, but generally very hard. So you're, you're, so, you're sort of investing under the power law orthodoxy, but your upside is capped. Yeah. So even if you have the breakout, like I like think the biggest breakout today are kind of probably Jahiz and Karim, right? Quite small, like for as outcomes, right? Yeah. Like, you know, low single digit billions. And this is the absolute best of the best of the best. Yeah. Um, and so um, you will get, I think we'll get like bigger outcomes, but they're not going to be, you're not going to get the next, you know, Apple emerge from here. Yeah, you know, take an extreme example. So it creates this kind of funny situation where you, you want to kind of lean into the FOMO. But then if you're rational about it, you say, look, the entire size of the market cannot, you cannot have the, you know, you cannot absorb that type of um, outcome. So does that mean you have to be much more judicious in how you allocate and much more aware of entry valuation? Um, at least that's some of the thinking we, we went through. And uh, jury's out whether that was right or wrong. I, I don't know. But... Uh, yeah, you're talking about capital allocation, yeah. not risk allocation. Yeah. yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I think to think that this market, or even if you took the MENA market or the Gulf market and added it to North Africa yeah. and Sub-Saharan Africa and Pakistan and Turkey and all these yeah, adjacent, you know, this adjacent sort yeah. of emerging markets, I know that's a very politically incorrect term these days, but well, what's the what's the politic term? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I mean, uh, it, it, that, that's definitely yeah. how I look at these markets. And I think when you look at those markets, there's a gigantic market. It's much bigger than the U.S. Mm. There's uh, there's far less penetration of disruptive technology than the U.S. But the friction of being able to yeah. aggregate markets is really very hard. hard. Yeah. Whereas if you're sitting in San Jose, yeah, you could start up a SaaS company or even a food delivery company or a anything. Airbnb, anything yeah, yeah. somewhere in California. And then you could be serving 350 million customers in the space of a yeah. year because you're in a frictionless giant market. Yeah. It's, a, it's a smaller market than this one, but it's frictionless. Well, I mean, uh, and with the high purchasing power, I mean, I think people don't understand how wealthy the average American is even. Well, it's look, incredible. Like it's, yeah, uh, that's true. But if now this takes me back to my telecom days, it's like, and that's something else that really equipped me for being drawn into the venture world, I saw telecom companies like Vodafone, for example, making so much money in Europe. And then I saw them making a lot of money in Kenya and yeah. in markets where the average revenue the per ARPU user, was small, the yeah. ARPU, yeah. was $3. Yeah. Right? The ARPU, that's the, that's the unit economics yeah, yeah. of telco, as you yeah, know. Yeah. And so the ARPU of a $3 in a market like India or a market like, uh, you know, any of the low GDP sub-Saharan African markets was still interesting enough because you've got scale. scale yeah. And uh, and a lot of those players, and it wasn't just the Europeans and the Americans, it was also yeah. the likes of Bharti, you know, Airtel from India, but even Zen Group from the region. I mean, Zen bought a huge... Yeah, yeah, they yeah. bought licenses everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. They bought Celtel, which gave them 13 operations in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you know, all of those were great, great operations. I mean, how you execute on aggregating economies like that really is fundamental. Yeah. And so, hard, and it's tough. And hard, yeah. exactly. And look, as a lawyer, because a lot of the work I've done, particularly during the days of working for telcos, 
was working for companies that had operations in many, many, many difficult markets. Yeah. And, you know, the way that I approach that um, in terms of getting comfortable around local law and local risk management yeah. was to be quite proactive in understanding the local regulatory and legal environment in each of these places mm. and then working very hard with local lawyers to innovate and, and kind of push the envelope without obviously doing what I was describing earlier, which is just saying it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I worked, for example, with, with a sovereign wealth fund that had something like nine operations in sub-Saharan Africa, really difficult countries. Countries, not democracies, very poor, um, very difficult places to do business. But, you know, in, in doing that kind of work, I was really able with the, with the team I had at the time to help the investor, you know, break down a lot of those barriers, yeah. understand the operating environment and successfully execute on jurisdiction aggregation for want of a better expression so i see a parallel for that in the tech in the tech space and so back to your point i mean look if you want to be a middle east tech company and you just want to focus on the middle key middle east markets which as you and i know means uae saudi and egypt, egypt yeah. predominantly although i think iraq is a market that people are about ignore, to emerge yeah, yeah. Ignore it is account. emerging it's is coming emerging. yeah yeah um then yeah, what you say is absolutely right. And it may be that if you're a venture player in those markets, you shouldn't aspire to be a Sequoia. You should aspire to be somebody who understands these markets and can do well mm. by pitching your, or by calibrating your valuation expectations and your yeah. deal entry around what your exit value exactly. is gonna look Realistically, like. Yeah. Realistically, But then, you know, the tension that comes into that is with the, you know, this kind of flowing of sovereign wealth into this disruptive tech ecosystem. Mm. Because I think that potentially can be unhelpful. Yeah. Because it drives FOMO, because it drives valuation inflation, yeah. because it drives lack of focus on proper execution and governance and structuring and discipline and all yeah. of that stuff. So for someone like you, I mean, you know, back, you know, you told me that my legal practice was ahead of its time. You were ahead of your time because you were one of the very first venture players in the region. You've been around longer than most people. You've probably learned or had more learnings than most people. I, I think, yeah, the problem with my experience is that a lot of it, or half my career is at the time, you know, I started doing this in 2007 when there was nothing here. Yeah. And the venture was like, you know, any kind of stuff, like it, would, it doesn't have to be tech, it could be anything. So, and I think my big, what I may have overlearned is that um, to be too cautious because of in an environment where it, nothing was really working and very few things work, so you become like yeah. overly cautious. So I'm trying to kind of unlearn that, yeah. like to be kind of more, um, a bit more gung ho, because my, my kind of DNA is much more, look like nothing really works, but you need to capture the one diamond yeah. in the rough that kind of like works out and it's very hard to kind of find it and don't expect it to be huge. And it's, it's something I'm trying to kind of like unlearn in a way, because this is a bet, much better environment for success. I mean, not to take away from my earlier point, but I think just you cannot, it's harder to get like a $10 billion outcome than, you know, anywhere, almost anywhere else in the world. But you can get a good outcome, much yeah. more so yeah. today than you could years ago, thanks to, in some way, like what the telcos have done, they built the infrastructure, you, there's digital connectivity, there's, so there's the digital connectivity, there's, an economic transformation going on in the region. We're moving away from like statism in some way, shape yeah. or form into 
like much more private sector led, directly or indirectly, whether the governments realize they're doing this or not doing this, you know, I don't know, but they are kind of sparking that in a meaningful way compared to like before a lot of the regional governments would say it, but not really do yeah. it. But now it's like somehow, you know, we're in step one of that kind of move towards private enterprise. We'll see what happens. But I think on the, um, on the sovereigns, you know, what's interesting is they are putting a lot of capital when they never did. They never believed in yeah. the region at all. And, and I have a lot to thank for them. I have a business today because like they get a lot. They're, they're my, a lot of them are my LPs and I'm very thankful for that. You do get what I'm cautious about is like, you know, they approach it developmentally rather than somewhat developmentally rather than just as allocators. Like they want to kind of build an ecosystem rather than, no, I think we can make like a 25% return here and we're, 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 we're good. It's not a normal allocation like, I don't know, uh, Harvard Endowment would do to venture or, you know, CalPERS would or somebody like that. Um, do you, so you, you tell me more why you're worried about like what the sovereigns are doing here. It's not, I mean, look, it's not that I'm worried about what they're doing. They're, they're, most of what they're doing is extremely impactful in a very positive way, I think, because they are building, you know, ecosystems that encourage uh, the emergence of entrepreneurship and innovation and disruption. Yeah. And that's a great thing. Because, you know, we've, if we take a step back, culturally in our region, failure has always been so stigmatized that, yeah. you know, the parents of the region always wanted their children to be doctors and lawyers and engineers yeah. and never entrepreneurs. So the fact that that has been turned on its head and, and the fact that governments in the region are playing a big role in that yeah. culture is very positive. It's super positive. Yeah. I, it's, it's a, I, would say, I would call it a low-level fear that an overabundance of either patient or not fully financially driven capital, yeah, not exactly. fully value driven capital, exactly, yeah. creates yeah. a potentially false market. I'm not saying there is a false market. I'm not saying the whole market is a false yeah. market, but there are elements of false markets. It's distortionary. It's a distortionary, exactly. Effect, like there's like things that don't look quite like purely natural as it were. Exactly, uh, and look, the other thing, you know, c coming back to your, how you, you know, allocate um, funds and the things that you're trying to unlearn. I mean, you and I were talking about somebody before uh, before we started recording, a founder that you've invested in, yeah. who's doing really well. And I remember him coming to pitch to Dubai Angel Investors for a different company before yeah. he set this yeah, up. Yeah. And I remember very clearly him pitching and I remember very clearly talking to my fellow investment committee members and saying, we should invest in this person even though this business is going to fail because yeah. I want to be on this this guy's journey because yeah. it's quite a rare thing to find somebody who really gives you a strong sense of how they can ideate, develop, plan, execute and do it in a really you know successful way that differentiates them yeah. and enables them to rise. And I think for people like you and even people like me wearing my, my Dubai Angels hat, that's all we've got in the region here because... Yeah. What we don't have yet, and I'm hoping that it will happen, develop, you know, hopefully very, very quickly, mm. is we don't have that kind of science and technology academic environment like deep that tech churns out thing, your no. deep tech people no. and your, your IP rich businesses. It, maybe it'll happen over time. Um, mm. so, so all we've got really is that founder differentiation, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, I might like that product, but you know, there's going to be 65 products that look exactly the same. 
and some of them might have been built here, but most of them have probably been built in the US or Europe or yeah. Australia or Malaysia, who knows? So the question is whether that person can really execute. I mean, that's 100%. the big thing. Uh, I, I think like it's, it's a bit counterintuitive and it's repeated a lot, but you know, cannot be underscored enough, which is at the early stage, all that really matters is the person, the yeah. founders, because like the idea, especially in our type of markets, like you said, like we don't have these kind of IP differentiators in any meaningful way. And they're not really tech. I mean, we say tech uh, very loosely, right? The definition of what is a tech and not tech company, I think, is is not useful. I, I don't like to think of myself almost a tech investor, but more like we're investing in founders building kind of new high growth businesses and business models that are interesting. Yeah. And you want the founders that are able to kind of do that and scale it and and and. Um, and, and make it work and so to kind of like take it to the and one of the challenges level. we have is like why combinator now has their startup school yeah so anyone who wants to be a founder can learn how to sound and look and act exactly like a good founder. it looks slick yeah so the bullshit radar becomes actually our biggest yeah, secret weapon. Yeah, yeah yeah and 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 like you get it wrong a lot because it's easy to kind of portray that but then once you once you at the early stage they're not operating for that long so there's not much to see except the rhetoric and the presentation yeah. and the the way they conduct themselves. But then once they start operating, they're like, oh, this is like all uh, all show and no go. There's yeah. like no substance here. Yeah. It's just like, it's just a great like, you know, uh, pitch and a great way of kind of presenting. And there's not that much to DD anyway. So it's like, oh, we, we got this way wrong. Yeah. So it's easy to fall for that, uh, that trap. I think I'm just like thinking about time, yeah. uh, running a bit low on time. But uh, what do you think, um, what are your kind of major I mean, just to kind of wrap up on, on something, what are your kind of major predictions for the next three, four years in our ecosystem yeah. um, in terms across the board? What do you think is coming, coming down the pipe? So, look, I want to talk about this without sounding too negative. I mean, we are obviously, all of us are in a down cycle at the moment. And so the tendency towards a pessimistic worldview is, is stronger. Mm. But I think we've got some challenges ahead of us in our regional ecosystem because... First of all, we are in our first venture down cycle. We haven't had one in the region. Uh, we didn't have a cycle before. We didn't <laughs> have a cycle. No cycles exactly. at all. Yeah. Exactly. So um, if you are a fund manager raising yeah. funds from LPs, I think there's a, there is going to be, if it hasn't already started, a little bit of a movement on the LP side to deploying capital with more mature fund managers, yeah. which means external to our ecosystem. Mm. But that may, not, may or may not be a big problem. I mean, yeah. that's something for fund managers to worry yeah. about. In terms of my predictions, I think we're going to see quite a lot of challenging situations, distress, yeah. in different forms and different degrees of distress. But right now, I'm seeing a lot of companies getting to the end of runway and not able to raise on up, you know, on, yeah. on up valuations. And so the way in which the ecosystem, and it is the ecosystem, there are so many stakeholders in the ecosystem, the way the ecosystem handles those situations with this kind of collective, you know, culture. Down rounds. Be down rounds or yeah. restructurings yeah. or, you know, pay to plays and, you know. I mean, these are really hairy situations, very right? Hairy. Like very difficult for shareholders, difficult. We've done one just recently. These are kind of like really complex, painful experiences yeah. that nobody's used to because most people are just used to this kind of 
like you know Absolutely. everything going in one direction upwards so look i mean i, I hate to do a little bit of a shameless uh, self-plug here but i did the first major or probably the first down round in the region for a mature venture-backed company post series b um that involved pay-to-play mechanics and very mm. challenging topics like that and they're challenging because once you've got more than one class of preferred shares you've got a whole bunch of different yeah. groups of people whose permission you need to get to do something that is instinctively against their interest mm. and so the stakeholder management the comms challenges the bringing everybody on that journey and advocating for the outcome is extremely difficult yeah and we did that deal it was a successful deal we won an award for it actually because it was you know we got a company that was you know looking at a sort of almost unicorn valuation mm. and one of the big names global names pulled out at last the last minute. minute and the company hit a wall in terms of cash we managed to get that deal done cash was in the company the turnaround yeah. happened and and that was four years ago actually it was the first one it wasn't in a down cycle it was just that that just company had bad luck like, yeah. now you know, obviously I've been seeing it happening. First of all, I have 29 live portfolio companies and Dubai Angel Investors, all of whom have different levels of yeah. cash available for their runway. And as a legal advisor, both to investors and to companies, we're seeing these situations a lot. Yeah. So this year, I mean, I've done definitely more down rounds than I've ever done. Yeah. And more distressed situations than I've ever done. And seeing the way that stakeholders are approaching these worries me a little bit because on the founder side i've seen founders who i've thought of as being solid ethical founders behave in a way which is not solid shady. and unethical shady yeah. um, which is very upsetting to see because you know as a founder that's really what you've got to be good at yeah is fixing or, or navigating through the most complex challenging. and difficult situations exactly yeah. I mean, it's not all like, I mean, this is the thing people, I mean, I know it's like a bit of a cliche, but like individuals, you really can understand who they are in challenging situations, right? And, yeah. And now you're starting to see like both funds and found, fund managers and the founders, you're starting to understand like who they really are, like, you know, how they absolutely. manage a difficult, navigate a difficult situation. Absolutely. And so that you're absolutely right. The second constituency is the fund managers. So I've seen fund managers playing this kind of posturing game of saying, no, I'm not going to give permission to that deal. I'd rather write it down to zero than give permission for you to do a down round yeah. because of the impact it has on me because I'm not going to participate. Yeah. And of course, you know, having been around in M&A and private equity and you know, being known for, for my um, approach to negotiations, I've been able to advise clients quite a few times on when I think that posturing is posturing yeah. and knowing that we will get a deal done in the end, but just keeping everybody yeah. on side and holding their nerve. But yeah, how, how managers and how investors behave in these situations is just as critical. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of that, yeah. but there's opportunity in there. Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite fund managers in this town was a VC in Silicon Valley during one of the sort of post.com um, mm -hmm. you know, bust periods where they made a lot of money. Um, by spotting special situation opportunities, yeah. knowing what a good company looks like, knowing what a resilient founder looks like, and being able to kind of do advocacy well enough that they could persuade an investor that might have to accept 30 or 40 cents in the dollar, yeah. or even 10 cents in the dollar to accept it. Rather than zero. Yeah. And move on to the next yeah. thing, rather than zero. And yeah. so 
Yeah, that's one of my predictions for the next three, four years. The other thing that concerns me in our region is the exit environment. Yeah. I worry about that a lot. You know, in the US, more than in Europe, but even in Europe to some degree, and even in places like Singapore, you've got the possibility to list and you've got the possibility to to go public. We don't really have that in our region. Yes, there's a great stock exchange in Saudi Arabia and there are going to be exits on the public market in Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. I think, if they can overcome some of their legal challenges and some of their companies' law challenges and some of their civil law challenges. There's friction in those markets. In the market that we're sitting in today, you know, we've got three or four stock exchanges. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. There's a real opportunity here. I mean, arguably the Gulf as a whole. I mean, but I mean, like the kind of political considerations aside, I mean, it would be such a net positive to consolidate Absolutely. regional exchanges, right? Like as a whole, not just UAE, I mean, yeah. like, but that's like above our pay grade. It's I way think. above yeah. our pay grade, <laughs> like, absolutely. But there's, yeah. you know, there's a challenge in the exit environment because even in the trade sale environment, yes, you've had breakouts, like you said, Jahez yeah. and Karim and, and Maktoub and, and, you know, a couple of others yeah. that we can name like Souq. But not many. Not many, you know. Not um, at the like breakout level. You have like the fifty million, the eighty million, hundred million dollar yeah. exit. But like the ones that go north of three hundred, four hundred, five hundred billion plus, those are you can count on. They're rare. And so yeah. I am concerned about the exit environment. Um, I think uh, it's something that's gonna have to prove itself. Um, my my view remains that if you wanna be um, a disruptive tech company coming out of the Middle East, you need to think about how do you develop a playbook for breaking down geographic boundaries. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, trying to solve the friction. And I think lawyers actually have a big role to play in that. Yeah. I'm not trying to self-promote, but yeah. I think lawyers have a big role to play yeah, in that. Absolutely. Um, because that's how you do it. You start consolidating revenue across mm. 16 markets. Yeah. And there are people who have done it. The telcos have done it. Yeah. No, no, 100%. Yeah. Uh, one last question, I think, around that. Do you feel, one thing that I think about is that there are too many, you feel like in a downturn as a prediction, Yanni, that um, are there maybe too many, they're too numerous, the fund managers, in the sense that what I find unusual about our market, too many small VCs, like way too many, um, and nobody actually has accumulated large, um, AUM. AUM. Nobody really has. Even even like the brands that have been in the market like years and years and years. Because at some point, it should like it should not fragment. It should like kind of consolidate. Do you see that happening, or do you think it's going to continue the way it is? Oh, good question. Look, I mean, first of all, we are. I would still describe us as a nascent market. A hundred percent. You know what are we? Seven or eight years old. Nothing. Yeah. So. Do I see consolidation among regional fund managers? I don't see too much of that coming. I do see the potential for global well-known fund managers to consider getting in bed with or acquiring fund managers in the region and kind of bringing the region into their overall stable. Though Sequoia appears to have gone in a different direction by fragmenting regions recently. But um, I see the potential for that. And I see some really interesting names now deploying a few people to the region to kind of look and see and, mm. and explore how do we make money here? And I do think there is money to be made if you can do that yeah. thing I was describing. Um, but then I don't think we should be too hard on, on on our ecosystem either. I mean, if you go to the US, yeah, there are some big name fund managers, but then 
the number of ex-founders or people who have had a good exit that I meet, who now, you know, they had a good exit in, say, a, an enterprise SaaS vertical serving mm -hmm. a particular industry, who say, right, you know what, I'm now going to do a roll-up strategy, and it's going to be deal by deal. And I'm going to go out and identify yeah. 16 companies in serving this vertical. I'm going to buy them all, aggregate them, and then list my roll-up vehicle. I see a lot of that. That's all deal by deal stuff. So, you know, the the big name fund managers, yes, they've they've accumulated large amounts of AUM, mm. but there are loads of small players. Loads. Some of them are corporate backed. Some of them are individuals. Some of them are uh, want to be venture capital uh, players who are yeah. starting to develop a track record. So that's, I mean, we're at that super early stage here, I think. So a lot, a lot will fall away. To back to your question, I think the ones who who don't apply the right kind of disciplines and the right um, investment orthodoxies will fall away. They'll fail. Uh, there's some like, I feel like, I call it like venture tourism, like someone who's like, usually like family office plus, they get some money from friends and maybe from some sovereigns. And it's usually like the third generation of that family. And I don't, you know, it's, this, is the, this is the cool, sexy thing to do. But I wonder if a lot of these guys, when it's not sexy anymore, they're like, you know what, I could do something else now. I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing, or maybe people find the calling. I, I don't know. So you, you invited me today and said, you know, I want you to be like, uh, be yourself. Be yourself. So, <laughs> so I'll say something that's probably not that politically correct. Look, yes, I mean, in the family office ecosystem, yeah. a lot of the third generation family members in the big families have taken a particularly strong interest in this space yeah. and have got allocations to go out and invest in, in venture and venture-backed companies. And some of them have gone down the route of fund of funds, investing with experienced fund managers yeah. in the region and out of the region. And some of them have gone down the direct investment route, which I don't think is, is I don't personally think is that smart. Wise, yeah. Even if you go out and hire like three VCs from the US market, yeah, it doesn't matter. Bring them in, it doesn't matter. You, it's, it's a, this is a difficult game to make good money in. And you need to be, you know, with venture, you need to be co-investing with other people that bring different takes on the same domain in terms of domain expertise or different takes on, you know, how do we solve the problem or help this company solve the problem? You know, doing it in that direct investments way, I think is going to, is going to have bad outcomes for some yeah. people. Some people will do really well, yeah, yeah. but it'll, in my opinion, it'll be more fluke than skill. Um, so, you know, let's, let's wait and see. Maybe now the enthusiasm is waning a little bit because of the way the current market is going. Mm. And there'll be more of a flight to quality, meaning established fund managers with TVPI and DPI mm. stats, you know, uh, you know, up to their armpits. And, and at that point, um, we'll see less of that activity. But when I talk, to, I talk to a lot of family offices and family businesses, generally when they want to get into this space, I do counsel them to actually go towards experienced fund managers with thematic, thematic approaches. approaches yeah. Yeah. And uh, a thesis, like a concerted thesis exactly. or whatever. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, I think we, we took up a lot of your time, but this was fun. Thanks for thanks, thanks for being our first kind of like guest on this. Not uh, at all. I enjoyed thing. it. And hope you'll come back and we'll do more of this. And uh, thank you so much. That'll be great. Thanks, thank you. Sandra. Cheers, Carl. All right.